Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm going to start today's podcast with a plea. If you've ever struggled with maths or science, please don't turn off. As well as learning a bit about his scientific achievements, today's podcast also concerns the man we have come to regard as one of the world's greatest mathematicians and scientists. You're about to learn the fascinating story that was his life. For Isaac Newton was born into a world of turmoil that shaped him and the avenues he chose to explore. And while we might know a bit about his calculus and his laws of motion and gravity, there's much to learn about Newton's life and some of his other ideas for which he is less well known. So why discuss Isaac Newton now? Well, this month marks 335 years since his most famous work, his Philosophiae Naturalis Principia Mathematica, Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy, was published. And 360 years ago this month, a royal charter was given to a group of natural philosophers and physicists who had been meeting regularly to discuss what we call science and to run experiments. The royal charter formalised this group to become the Royal Society, and it was this society that would publish Newton's Principia in 1687. Adopting the motto of nullius in verba, or take nobody's word for it, the Royal Society believed that rather than taking anything on the authority of the person, all facts should be verified and proven experimentally. So I implore you to cast off any school day doubts and open yourself to experiment. Our guest today is Rob Eyelife, Professor of the History of Science at the University of Oxford and an Editorial Director of the Newton Project. The aim of the Newton Project is to publish in full an online edition of all of Isaac Newton's writings, whether they were printed or not. Given that Newton's works run to millions of words, this is an astonishing project. And as you can imagine, completing it has given Professor Eyelife remarkable insights into Newton and his life. You can read about those insights in his books, A Very Short Introduction to Newton and Priest of Nature, the religious world of Isaac Newton. And you can also just listen on. Professor Eilif, thank you so much for joining me today. 
I feel that I am very much on shaky ground here, so I am so glad I have you as a guide. <laughs> of course, I had the encounter, as everyone has, with Isaac Newton at school and, you know, taught about his laws and maths and physics. But I'm struck by the fact that Newton's contemporaries thought it could take years to master his ideas. So I suppose the first thing I wanted to ask you was, why have you committed your life to his work? I went to Cambridge University to do a doctoral thesis and I started doing something completely different. And I found that there were microfilms of Newton's theological materials in Cambridge University Library. And I got interested in them, partly because no one had really looked at them seriously. And they were difficult. They were technically demanding. And I just, you know, I was young and I just thought it was a challenge to try and work out what he actually wrote rather than sort of superficial stuff about what he may have written or anything else. And I also wanted to take his religious writings in their own light, as it were, to consider them by themselves rather than through the kind of prism of the history of science or through his scientific writings. So just imagining Newton as a theologian, which to some extent he was because he was a Cambridge don and he had a wide range of interests. So really the thought was in order to understand how they relate to his scientific work, if indeed that was the question, one had to first of all consider them independent from the scientific work and then see afterwards how they stacked up with each other. And then I didn't realise when I started just how much there was. And I knew he'd worked on this stuff for a long time, but I didn't realise that his interest went back so far to his early years. And I didn't realise there'd be about six, seven million words of his writings that we've managed to put up online on the Newton Project. Probably just as well, isn't it? Because <laughs> you wouldn't have done it if you'd known. <laughs> yeah, I would have done something else. <laughs> so let's come back to his theological writings. I really want to ask you about that. But perhaps we should first of all start by a bit of biography. Could you outline Newton's young life? I know he was born in 1642. So that's the start of the British Civil War. And I imagine that means he had quite a tumultuous childhood. But tell me. Yes. In England and one or two other Protestant countries, he's born on Christmas Day, 1642. But in most of the rest of the world, he's born on the 4th of January, 1643. But the English Civil Wars had just broken out. He lived quite close to where there's a lot of fighting between royalist and parliamentarian forces. And where he lived also became a sort of centre of parliamentarian political activity and also Presbyterian religious activity right up to 1659, 1660. So he was brought up in that kind of environment before the restoration of Charles II in 1660. But his dad had died three months before Newton was born. So Newton was brought up posthumously. And when he was a very young boy, just two years old, his mother married a local vicar and she had three more kids by this man, Barnabas Smith. And Newton had a fractious relationship with some of those half-siblings and also with his mum. And for some of this time, he was brought up by his mother's mother, his maternal grandmother. We don't know much about his maternal grandfather. And I think that his streak of independence comes or was exacerbated, enhanced by that early upbringing. We have that from his own reminiscences about what he was like as a kid. But also there's some degree of independent evidence, both from his earliest writings and also from some people who were interviewed after Newton died at the age of 84. There were still a few people left around who remembered him in Grantham. And it's very interesting how their reminiscences tally with the evidence that Newton himself left. That is interesting. And suggests some people had quite long lives at that time. 
Yeah, that's extraordinary, isn't it? So who do you think was influencing the young Newton? Whom did he admire? I think he was a religious boy and some of his relatives, his mother's brother, went to Trinity College, Cambridge. His stepfather, obviously, was a religious man, a vicar. And there was erudition in the family, as well as a commitment to the Church of England. But Newton, necessarily in the 1650s, particularly when he went to grammar school, lived in the house of the local mayor, or at least the person who was the mayor for some time, and a very prominent parliamentarian and Puritan. And Newton's proclivities towards Puritanism or towards deep, devout religiosity were enhanced by living with this person in Grantham. And I think that the independence he's got in his thinking also comes from being exposed to a number of different religious persuasions. So he found it easy, I think, to be distant from any particular sect or confessional commitment. So he followed those men up to Trinity College, Cambridge in 1661. Yeah. Would have been 19 then. So what was university life like for him? I mean, do we have any sense of a typical day? And also, do you think the restoration changed university life? Yes. I should add, of course, that he was very good at school. And, you know, there are many reminiscences about Newton, mainly from himself. Most of the evidence we have about Newton comes from himself. And I think that's important. He's obviously got exceptional talent. He gets distracted by certain things. But when he puts his mind to something, he devotes himself wholly to it. When he went to Trinity College, it wasn't something that his mother wanted. She wanted him to run the farm. I think one of the great findings from about 30 or 40 years ago was actually that his mum was very wealthy. She owned goats and sheep that were substantial for Lincolnshire at the time. You know, he came from a place called Woolsthorpe, which clearly a town that was devoted to making wool. His mother married this vicar who was reasonably wealthy and Newton inherited the manor and lands around it. But when he went to Trinity College, he went as a sort of servant level person, a sub-sizar. So you've got a hierarchy of students, fellow commoners who are basically wealthy boys who are treated like the fellows. And then you've got all the way down to sizars who are servants who get some kind of subsidy in terms of their meals and their fees. And then Newton seems to have been the lowest level. And it's an extraordinary thing that his mother, who could have paid for him to be a fellow commoner, paid very little for him. But that doesn't seem to have worried Newton too much, I think, because he was capable of immersing himself in intellectual projects from an early age, not worrying too much about what other people thought or did. Now, it's very interesting that you're saying that one of the crucial sources here is his reminiscences, what he tells us about himself. And given that he becomes one of the world's most important mathematicians and physicists, was his genius recognised early? Or is that just that he's telling us that? I think that the evidence is that he's seen as a strange boy. The reminiscences, I think, are fairly accurate. I know lots of people disagree, but I think they're fairly accurate from him. Even into his 80s, I think there's a grain of truth about everything. But of course, they're coloured by Newton's wish to be seen in a certain way, because he knew as he was leaving these reminiscences that that's how he'd be remembered. Much of it is about his eccentricity, forgetting to eat properly. He's supposed to take a horse into Grantham and then he's holding the halter and reading a book and doesn't realise that the horse has bolted. All these sorts of things, they're kind of classical views of the distracted scholar. But clearly he was a bit like that. And there's a wonderful reminiscence again from him, a memory that 
when he left his home to go to Trinity, the servants in his house said that he was a silly boy who would be good for nothing. That's not true because he became a reasonable, if distant, manager of Wolfsthorpe Manor. But, you know, in terms of his commitment to scholarship, that's what he did when he went to Trinity. And the first few years he was there, he studied the traditional curriculum, the kind of thing that people have been studying for decades, if not hundreds of years. But there was new stuff coming in. And in his third and fourth years as an undergraduate, he started to study new forms of astronomy and natural philosophy and mathematics, natural philosophy being the two words for science. And you can see that he sort of gives up. In all these cases, he really very quickly latches onto the new way of doing things. And he's extremely critical, meaning he has this critical sensibility. I don't mean that he's negative. I mean, he's able to discern whether something is worth reading and whether something isn't worth reading. And he's able to build research projects on the things that are worth reading very quickly. And that goes for mathematics and natural philosophy, science, but also for mechanics. And he's able to go away and really study on his own for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And, you know, there's slightly later accounts of Newton by a man who was the master of Trinity College from 1677 to 83, a man called John North, who said that he thought that Newton would have killed himself for studying too much. But Newton did alchemy as well. So he's working with his hands. He builds a lot of his own instruments. But most of his expertise is textual. And we know that a lot of that expertise is also now in theology. And one of the great things about Newton, perhaps one thing that people should remember, is he spent a lot of time on alchemy and theology. And there is a sense in which he did his mathematics and science, not in his spare time, but it was a secondary importance to him, I think. Yes, I found it remarkable in your work to come across this idea that he wrote more about religion than about maths or science. So perhaps we should spend some time on that then. What theological ideas do we see in his writings? And also, I'd like to know why you think they're not better known. Well, he started off, as far as we know, as an orthodox Protestant. He has many sensibilities, so views that are common at the time. So he's deeply anti-Catholic. He thinks the Pope is anti-Christ. But that's fairly common. Depends what you think anti-Christ means. He has a fantastic knowledge of the Bible. You know, he's brought up catechizing early on. He's immersed in the Bible. He knows it by heart. Of course, he would do that because he studies it every day. When he went to Trinity College, he learned how to read the Greek New Testament. That was what they used to learn Greek. And there are many ways in which he's developing the tools and techniques to become a proper theologian, I think, as a young man. He takes it very seriously. And many people didn't. You know, not everybody is a committed religious person in that period, whether they're Church of England or on the more Puritan, Presbyterian, independent side. But Newton did. And he adopts the same kind of critical attitude to theology that he did to the sciences and to mathematics. And I think very quickly he comes to see that in a very radical Protestant way, that the key doctrine of Christianity, the notion of the Trinity, he starts to think is a falsehood. It's an excrescence that was brought in in about the fourth and fifth century by the devil himself in the form of Roman Catholicism. So when the doctrine of the Holy Trinity becomes the key part of Orthodox Christianity, and particularly the kind of physicalist relationship between God and the Son, that's when Newton says it all went wrong. 
And much of Newton's theology is to try and get back to the way it was to Christ's own teachings, which he thinks are very simple and easy to be understood. Whereas all the metaphysical niceties and difficulties of the Trinity, they're all things that were brought in and designed to, well, perplex ordinary people. That's what he thinks. That's fascinating. So this is the beginnings of what later, I suppose, called Unitarianism. Was it heresy at the time? Yes, it is. Newton was formerly a heretic. I mean, I don't mean that he was publicly denounced as a heretic, but what he believed was very extreme. I mean, what he believed was not deniably orthodox. It has to be said that Newton himself thought that the Church of England should be so broad that it should include views of people like him. But his views are extreme. You know, his views are that orthodox Trinitarian Christianity of Protestant and Catholic sides is diabolical, literally diabolical. And he could not announce that in his lifetime. He did let one or two people know, more like four or five people. And there were other people who suspected that he wasn't as orthodox a person as he should have been. But what he wrote in private had to be kept quiet because... You know, in the middle of the 17th century, it was blasphemy and liable formally to capital punishment. But in the late 17th, early 18th centuries, when Newton lived and became this major government social figure, you know, an MP for Cambridge University, president of the Royal Society, etc., etc., if it had been known that he had those views, he would never have had those positions. And I think he would never have been allowed to write the Principia, or maybe he would have been allowed to develop some of these things in private. But what he believes is really, really radical, even by the most radical views of his time. Today, people sometimes consider science and religion to be conflicting. Do you have a sense of Newton's stance on this, his relationship between theology and natural philosophy at the time? Yeah, I think it's tricky, but I'll try and make it simple, which is to say he thought that they were similar. That is to say, doing science is a religious activity because you're looking at God's creation. And the more you learn about the natural world, the more you learn about what they called the being and attributes of God. You know, you look at the natural world, you see the beauty, and you can see that this is a God of order, and also a God who's a geometer, an expert mathematician, because once Newton discovered the laws of motion and the force laws, then you can see that God has inscribed mathematical figures into the universe. So in that sense, everything is of a piece, the science and religion. But he also thought that the core truths in scripture were things that were demonstrations only to an elect or a select group of people. So, you know, unless you are somebody who believes in the truth of Christianity, in a, the particular truth that he sees, then all the demonstrations and arguments that he makes in favor of his view of the history of the world and what's going to happen in the future, none of those things will be demonstrations. It's not like Euclid. You know, because Jews and Muslims and anybody can understand those. They can understand Apollonius. They can read the Principia. But not everybody is fit to understand, as he sees it, the truths of the demonstrations of the truth of Christianity. And in that sense, there's a very deep division between the two. And he thinks that those people who think that proving religious truths is like Euclid, that they should go to hell, that they will go to hell in a handcart. That's what he thinks. So there's a radical distinction between the two areas, but also in terms of natural theology, you know, seeing the world as a beautiful creation of God, then he sees the pursuit of science as something that's deeply religious. 
Now, let's take us through his career a little bit more. So after graduating from Cambridge, he became a professor of mathematics at Cambridge. He was then elected a fellow of the Royal Society before his presidency here, which had been granted a royal charter in 1662. Is it right to say that at this stage in the sort of 1670s, he was considered a bit of an outsider? He was. He was seen talent spotted, I think, in the middle of the 1660s. And he was made a minor and then a major fellow of Trinity College. But there's the break in the middle of that decade because he went back to Lincolnshire because of the plague. He did this incredible work on differential and integral calculus in that period. And then he turned to look at optics, where he discovered the heterogeneity of white light and developed the first working reflecting telescope as a result. But it's for his mathematical prowess that he was made the second Lucasian professor in the autumn of 1669. And he started to lecture in January 1670 on geometrical optics in tribute to his tutor, Isaac Barrow, who was the first Lucasian professor. And then really he gets dragged into the London scene or pushed into it, even though he likes to be very withdrawn. He doesn't really want to be a sociable person because he's not a particularly sociable person. In fact, there's other things we can say about him later on. But he's a very interesting guy in terms of somebody who has a great deal of humility about him but also someone who is well aware of the extraordinary things he's discovered. And he sends a paper in February 1672 to the Royal Society for publication in the Philosophical Transactions, where he announces the heterogeneity of white light. You know, white light is composed of, as he sees it, seven basic primary colours that come together, that when they come together through a lens will produce white light. And that made his name, but he's still seen as an outlier. You know, he's not a London man. He very occasionally goes to London in the 1670s, and he's resented by Robert Hooke, who's the great demonstrator, natural philosopher at the Royal Society. He has a peculiar relationship with Robert Boyle, who's the most authoritative natural philosopher of the time. But Newton's commitment to mathematics, I think, makes him very different from Robert Boyle. And he and Hooke have many disagreements over the foundational qualities of the world. You know, Newton is a particle person. Hooke is more of a wave person, if you see it like that. So there are many tensions between Newton and people in London, and I think he prefers it. He's seen as an outlier. He's a Cambridge Don, and he's not a metropolitan man in that sense. So it feels like there's two things, though, or maybe even three. One is about his kind of character or his parochialism, perhaps, as it might have been seen by the London elite, And the other is about the ideas that are challenging the status quo. Do you think that's the real tension and is the reason that he is seen as this outlier? I think it's an extraordinary thing. You know, Newton is a big supporter of experiment, but he's clearly a gifted mathematician. Most people have no idea just how gifted he is at the time, although they know he's the Lucasian professor of mathematics. But, you know, new ideas are coming in. In the Royal Society, you could say that they're based on the ideas of Francis Bacon. It's about experiments and observation and so on and so forth. And from another side, people are talking much more about the use of scientific instruments. The air pump is there. People are using thermometers and barometers and so on. But what Newton does is he brings mathematics in. And he is this outlier. He's someone who really wants to mathematize natural philosophy. And that makes him very different because he has the skills to do that. And I think his radical commitment to mathematics and to mathematizing natural philosophy does put him at odds with people in the Royal Society. So even as they're overturning natural philosophy, they're getting rid of the old stuff 
and they don't quite like the stuff that's coming from France with uh, Descartes and everything else. Even as they're getting rid of that and thinking they're making progress, here comes this guy from Cambridge who tells them they're only going about one-tenth of the way that's required to produce truth. And of course, they don't like that. You know, who is this person? They know very little about what he does, but they do know that he's got a very prickly character. And I think that's something that comes through quite early on. I don't think he's arrogant. He's got every right to be arrogant, but he defends to the hilt his ideas. And I think that the aggression is extraordinary. That's very interesting. So he objects, in other words, to other people not responding more quickly or nimbly to the ideas that he's putting before them? No, I think he objects to people not agreeing with everything he says. Uh, I I think it's more simple than that. He has a pose of humility. He has a pose that if anyone finds anything that's wrong with what he said, he's very happy to consider it and respond. But he has no interest at all in publicly bending before what anyone else says. I mean, there are some really important criticisms One comes from Robert Hooke and another one from the great Dutch natural philosopher, Christian Huygens. And he does listen to Huygens and he kind of quietly changes his definition of what a ray of light is in response to Christian Huygens. But he really is an aggressive defender of his own intellectual property and of his way of doing things. You know, and the people in London are not used to doing that. I think they find him very rude. But because the man who's the secretary of the Royal Society and the editor of the Philosophical Transactions, he loves this. He loves to see contention because it gives him copy for the next editions of the Phil Trans. And, you know, Newton's writings and the defences of his own views take up a hell of a lot of five years of the Phil Trans from 1672 to 1677. Millions dead a higher proportion of civilian casualties than in the Second World War. America, Britain, Russia and China all involved in a conflict that technically remains active to this day. So why is the Korean War of 1950-53 to called the Forgotten War? The North Koreans and the South Koreans, even today in the 2020s, they're still officially at war. This July, we're dedicating a special series of episodes to finding out what this unique conflict was all about from the halls of power. I've seen documents in the last week where the British chiefs of staff are telling Clement Attlee, this might lead to World War III. This might be a nuclear war. To the battlefront. During the Korean War, the ship fired its guns far more than it ever did in the whole of the Second World War, because that's what we were doing day in, day out. Join me, James Rogers, throughout July on the Warfare podcast from History Hit, as we remember the war the world forgot. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Something obviously changes because in 1687, it's the Royal Society who published his Principio. So tell me about his intellectual development over those years and also its reception, I suppose. A rather major question, I know. (laughs) Yeah, because in the middle of the 70s, I think he publicly forsakes mathematics and natural philosophy for different reasons. I think he's upset that people haven't agreed with everything he said. He's upset that people don't take his word for the truth of his writing. So he then moves to concentrate on alchemy and theology. And by the early 1680s, we know he's got a very, very well-established view of alchemy. I mean, he's sifting through all these authorities that exist to work out which ones are credible and which ones are not. I think he thinks most of them are not credible, but there are some who are credible. You know, there are some people in the last 300, 400 years who've made great advances in alchemy. And he does chemistry as well. I mean, some people think that it's very hard to distinguish between those two things, but he became an expert in alchemy in those years. But he became a real expert in theology as well, a very serious theologian who has his own very idiosyncratic ideas about the history of the world, really, and the history of the battle between good and evil. And of course, also where he stands in that history, you know, he is somebody who is not individually or by his own person, he's not predicted or prophesied. But his own time and what will come in the future, of course, is something that you can read off in the New Testament, in Revelation. And he spends a vast amount of time dealing with that because it's important. He's also interested in politics. You know, he's deeply worried about the coming to the throne of James II in 1685, a Roman Catholic king who is now head of the Church of England. And Newton grapples with that problem. But he teaches lectures on algebra. As Lucasian professor, he deposited them in the Cambridge University Library as his lectures. And then in 1684, Edmund Halley of Halley's Comet fame visited him to ask what the relationship was between an elliptical orbit and the inverse square law, which was known as the thing that governed the motion of planets around the sun. And Newton gave an answer, which this is in probably about August 1684, Newton gave an answer that pleased Halley. And Halley said, do you have a demonstration? Newton said, yes, I do. He went into another room and then came back a few minutes later, said, I can't find it, but I'll send you something. And then in November 1684, he sent a short little document on the motion of bodies in orbits. He sent that to the Royal Society, and that became the basis of what was published as the Principia Mathematica, the Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy in 1687. And that 
puts forward the three laws of motion. There are, there are two different kinds of force law, but essentially there's a definition of force as you know, mass times acceleration, but also a definition of force as a constant multiplied. So the force between any two bodies is a constant G multiplied by the product of the masses divided by the square of the distance between them. So, you know, very, very, very big bodies that are close to each other attract each other a hell of a lot. Bodies that are very far away from each other and tiny don't attract each other very much, but they do attract each other. And that's the thing that contemporaries find very difficult, I think, which is they still think in mechanical terms, physical terms. They think of natural philosophy as offering physical explanations. And so Newton's brilliant epoch-making work is difficult to accept for many people because you have to explain how you know an atom on one side of an infinitely large universe attracts another atom on the other side of the universe and frankly you can't and nor can newton but you know newton's work is really extraordinary counterintuitive it changes the nature of what explanation is he effectively proves that you can mathematize the universe he proves that the universe is written in mathematical letters by telling you what those mathematical letters are you know he shows that god as he sees it, created a world that's mathematical by finding the right mathematical language. I mean, all these things are extraordinary, and you can see that people are bemused and shocked by it. And what he did is so shocking that a lot of people thought that it wasn't physics, that it was more mathematics than physics. And that's what happens when you mathematize the universe. You know, for a lot of people, if you get rid of all the physical stuff from the universe, as Newton sort of does, you know, because the universe is mainly force, at one point, he says later on, you can put all of the matter in an infinitely large universe on the shell of a nut, because what there is in the universe is just force. It's the force relations between these particles. I mean, that's an extraordinary way of thinking that no one had come close to before. You're explaining all these wonderfully complex things in very easy terms. And so I'm lowering the tone to ask you this, really. But I feel like it's incumbent on me to ask, is the Apple story true? Well, it depends what the Apple story is, because I think nearly everybody thinks that the Apple story is because an apple fell on Newton's head. But that's the William Tell story. Newton told the Apple story to four separate people just before he died. And I think it's true. And I think that Newton sat in his garden in the plague year of 1665 or 66, and he saw an apple fall, and it triggered some thoughts about things close to the earth fall down, they go straight down. And he started thinking, well, maybe we can think of the moon going round the earth as something, you know, in the same way that the earth attracts the moon continuously, but the moon has a kind of initial velocity that always threatens to take it out into outer space. But there's just enough force exerted by the earth to keep it in this circular, as he sees it, it's elliptical, but let's call it circular motion. I don't see why that's impossible. And I would say almost every other thing that we know of Newton's reminiscences is backed by evidence. So when we have evidence, let me put it the other way around. When we have evidence, it backs what Newton said, what he remembered. And I think like most people, I speak autobiographically, you know, you can remember things from when you're young, but you've got no idea what happened in the last 30 odd years. So I, <laughs> I give a lot of credence to Newton's capacity to remember what happened in the mid 1660s. Yes, I'm sure there's something there about the fact that we've just told ourselves those stories so many more times that they get kind of written down in our brains. Well, I think it's a fashionable thing to say that it's something that he invented. I'm sure that the shape of it, the sort of way he describes it is 
not exactly as it really happened, but I tend to think that there's some kind of grain of truth underlying it. He was always interested in apples, by the way. That was something that no one's written on it, but he did write a couple of letters to the Royal Society on local apples in Lincolnshire. Well, there's a project for someone who's listening. Now, if we skip forward almost a decade, there's a strange career change that I'm hoping you can explain, is that he went to take up a role at the Royal Mint, and he even went undercover to hunt out counterfeiters. This seems extraordinary to me. Can you explain it to us? Yes. In the summer of 1688, a year after he'd finished the Principia, Newton decided he wanted to go into politics, which is extraordinary but true. And he wanted to limit the power of James II. Towards the end of the year, there's an invasion by the Dutch monarch, William of Orange, and it's called the Glorious Revolution. And it's allegedly a bloodless revolution, although there was some fighting and some people died. And the following year in 1689, William and Mary became monarchs. So William III, William of Orange, and Newton became an MP in January 1689 and is very much a defender of William and so on and so forth. And he spent a year as an MP. I think in the old days, people thought he didn't do very much, but he actually did. I think he was hard at work trying to sort of make the statutes of Oxford and Cambridge colleges and the university itself more resilient against attempts by you know, tyrants to change them. After that, he went back and taught at Cambridge for a bit. And then in the middle of the 1690s, as England and Scotland are dragged into war at the behest of William against France, there's a financial crisis. There are all kinds of problems. The government needs to borrow money to fight in what's now Belgium, parts of France, And the Bank of England is created in 1694 to deal with that. But Newton's not really involved in that, but he is involved from the middle of the 1690s in an effort to recoin, because for separate reasons, the coin in England is becoming depraved. People are clipping it. It's becoming degraded. And the Chancellor of the Exchequer is a man called Charles Montague, who'd been a colleague of Newton at Trinity College. Charles Montague thinks of somebody whose integrity would guarantee the increase in efficiency of the Mint. And thanks to Montague, Newton became warden of the Mint. So that's a crown official in 1696 in spring. And Newton, depending on how you look at it, he revolutionised to some extent the productivity in the Mint, and they produced vast amounts of silver coin for three years. It has to be said, not to a great effect. I mean, they did produce large amounts of coin, but people didn't want to spend it. They'd still rather spend bad coin. But bad coin did seem to go out of the system. So people are clipping coin and melting it down. And you know, so a lot of the coin in 1695-96 is about 60 or 70% of the size of a normal coin. And what Newton did and what was his role as Warden of the Mint, as a crown official, he had the authority to chase after counterfeiters and effectively to seal their fates in terms of capital punishment. So he could turn an informer or he could turn a counterfeiter against another informer or counterfeiter. And we actually have his depositions, so confessions made by people with him being present. And I think one thing that's worth saying is that he didn't come to that with no training, because one of the things he was good at, and we know he did this in the 1680s and early 90s, is in theology, it's querying the credibility of people who'd lived a thousand years before him. So when they made statements, Newton saw it as his obligation as a religious person to test whether they were speaking the truth or not. And of course, he starts off with this assumption that the Trinity is a lie. 
that it's polytheism and so on and so forth. But he essentially is an interrogator of people who lived a thousand or 1200 years in the past. So he takes that skill into the interrogation room of clippers and counterfeiters. And, you know, occasionally he effectively signed the death warrant. He didn't literally do it, but he had the capacity to show mercy to some of these people. And in a few cases, he didn't. So it was his job. And these people are traitors by the law of the land at the time. You know, they're making false coin in a time of war. And Newton did his job incredibly well. And at the end of 1699, he was made master of the mint, which is a slightly different job. It's one of the three major jobs in the mint, along with being warden. And he was master of the mint for the last quarter of a century of his life. Being master allowed him to make money because you had a very small percentage on the amount of silver or gold coined in the mint. And I think as a result, he became fairly wealthy. He was a generous man in terms of charity. He wasn't generous to a lot of his friends and certainly not to his enemies. He thought he was a psychopath. But to a lot of people who begged him for support, he was a generous man. He is being revealed as such a complex character. It's fascinating. And also I want to say, actually, that idea about interrogating the past as a theologian is, of course, what historians do. It's what scholars of every sort do, really, I suppose, is corroborate and search for evidence, whether they are natural philosophers or philosophers or mathematicians. But in 1702, he's also given the post of being president of the Royal Society, as you mentioned earlier. Does that indicate that that surprise and shock at his ideas has dissipated and that his contemporaries have accepted his point of view at that point in time? I think that's an interesting point. He's got lots of fanboys. You know, he's got people who are prepared to sacrifice their lives in some way. I don't mean literally, but they devote themselves to learning and mastering the Principia Mathematica. And they get Newton's patronage. So they, they turn him into this genius, this great man. I don't mean that he isn't. I mean that they enhance his reputation by developing parts of the Principia. He also published a work which was a sort of, not the greatest hits, but a book-length version of his optical work. This work was called Optics that came out in 1704. But Newton dispensed patronage to various people and got them plum positions in the Netherlands and in England and to a lesser extent, Scotland. But his extreme mathematicism is still unpalatable to a lot of people. It's fine to mathematise some parts of the world, but it seems that there are other parts of the world, you know, chemistry, life, a whole series of other domains that can't really be mathematised. So a lot of people, I think, are suspicious of the colonial aspirations of mathematics. They think that it's not really applicable to a whole series of areas. So Newton's mathematicism, as it were, his desire to mathematise all of science, it can only go so far, and there are people who are suspicious of it. But his standing is extraordinary. You know, he is seen as the major natural philosopher. He has one or two relatives and friends who see him as this godlike genius. And Newton has to damp down their enthusiasm to some extent, because Newton's theological views, I think, come from this very Puritan idea that he's hostile to idolatry. He thinks of the doctrine of the Holy Trinity as idolatry. It's polytheism. It's making an idol out of Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost when the only true God is the Father. That's what Newton thinks. So this concern about ordinary people worshipping things and seeing in them power that doesn't belong to them, that's something that he sees about himself. I mean, he likes the adulation, really. 
But I think when people get serious and consider him to be something more than he is, superhuman, then he rails against that. It's interesting to consider that the sort of Puritan drive towards erasing an idolatry and not having images, not having saints, you know, that Protestant direction, if you follow that trajectory long enough, you end up with Unitarianism because you're trying to eradicate all sorts of idolatry. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the line. I mean, you don't see it in any easy way because he's written so much. So it's very hard to see the tracks of it. But I think you're absolutely right. Clearly, right at the heart of his animus, his religious emotionalism is this hatred of idolatry. And he sees it everywhere. And it takes him into very problematic positions because he's profoundly anti-Catholic. He's profoundly opposed to invoking the supernatural or the miraculous when it's not really there. But of course, if you take that too far, you end up with all those tools that he provides and that people like him provide to attack the Trinity and so on and so forth, that they are tools that are taken up by people who are opposed to religion itself. So you have to be very careful, I think, if you're Newton, because he was working at a time when so-called deists and in some cases outright atheists are emerging from under the woodwork. And they love tools of the kind that Newton and other anti-Trinitarians or Unitarians provide. Everything you've said has revealed this great fullness of Newton's life and his work. Why do you think that before the Newton project, he hadn't been considered in this kind of context? I think that there are two or three different answers to that. I mean, one of them is the papers weren't really available. And there are different reasons for that. One of them is, I think, that the holders of his papers in the Portsmouth family, because his half-niece, the daughter of his half-niece, married into the Portsmouth family, and they had his papers. And I think they're concerned about the heterodox, if not heretical, nature of these papers. And I think in the Victorian period and afterwards, with the rise of science and mathematics, you know, sort of STEM dominance in the late 19th century, the, the religious papers are seen as valueless. They're literally stated as being without value until there was Sotheby's sale in 1936. And this is the religious papers went off to a man called Abraham Yehuda, who has this extraordinary career that was written about by my wife, Sarah Dry, in her book on Newton's papers. And ultimately, the theological papers arrived at the Jewish National and University Library in 1967 during the Six-Day War in Jerusalem. And really, it was only the 1970s and 80s that people began to look at them seriously. I was one of the first people. And they're very daunting because Newton approached the theological stuff with the same fervour and desire to get into the nitty-gritty that he did with natural philosophy and calculus. And in the 1990s, myself and others were funded to put all this stuff online for those people who want to look at it. It's freely available and so on and so forth. But if you look at it, you can see Newton, all these notes, you know, millions of words of notes, but there are efforts to systematize, or as he would put it, methodize all this stuff. And it's unlike anything else that any other scientist has ever done. We just don't have any other papers like that on theology for any other natural philosopher scientist. You know, he took theology seriously. Yes. Yeah, so in other words, it is all there available to read online and anyone can go and read it and they're encouraged to do so. But at the same time, you should know dear reader, that this is a major work. <laughs> this is going to take you time and energy. It's hard. It's not easy stuff. I mean, you start off, all you need to know is he doesn't like Roman Catholics. He doesn't like <laughs> idolatry. He thinks that Islam is a version of diabolism as well, but then, you know, most people did at the time. 
And of course, one of the amusing things to consider is that he thinks that most of his good friends and colleagues in the Church of England believe something that was inserted into the DNA of Christianity falsely in the fourth and fifth century. You know, so his major colleagues in the Church of England all believe something that's idolatrous, according to Newton. And that tells you something about how he must have felt. He's surrounded by people who believe something that it's not that they believe something that's politically different. That would be easy. I mean, they believe something that in the core of his being is the mark of the devil. And even as a guy in his 60s, 70s and early 80s, you know, he carries with him that Puritan anti-idolatry, that Puritan anti-Catholicism that came from being a sort of Civil War boy. It never left him. And it certainly must have given him a sense of superiority in that he was able to perceive something that they could not. I think that that's a very interesting question, of course. We go back to the idolatry thing, and he clearly thinks he has a gift. He has the gift of understanding, but it's not something that you just get given. You have to work at it. So he's got a gift that is there to him if he works hard. So there's a deep theology of work with Newton underpinning everything. If you're sweet, if you're virtuous, if you're Christian, and if you work hard, you have a very good chance of finding the truth. But there are many perils along the way. And you have to be you know, very self-aware. Newton is always deeply concerned about his own imagination as the source of fiction and lust and so on and so forth. So that has to be tamed or suppressed or eradicated. And all of that is a precondition for being able to do any kind of research, whether it's science or reading the Bible. You have to get rid of that subjectivity. There's always this intense self-control, self-examination that you get with Newton, but he doesn't write about any of that. You know, when you read all his theological writings, there's no introspection. You very rarely get a sense of the real Newton, but you know that his life is a life of unrelenting discipline. That's what it is. So just to finish, I want to ask you two questions. One is a huge question, but I'm going to ask all the same. And the questions I want to ask are about impact. So how did Newton's work change the world for his contemporaries? And what is the sort of ongoing legacy of that change? I think there are two aspects to this. And I'll start with the easier one first is the two paradoxes with Newton. First one is Newton is seen by most people as the forerunner of modern science. But even as he was working in the early 18th century, the things that would be fruitful, that the approaches and techniques in the mathematical sciences that would be fruitful and fertile into the 19th century, they're being developed by Gottfried Leibniz and his disciples in Germany and Switzerland and elsewhere, but not in England. Now, there are some brilliant disciples of Newton. They're Scottish and Dutch and so on and so forth. But the fertile, fruitful stuff is being done by Euler, after Newton, Lagrange, Laplace, and so on and so forth. So it's the French and the Swiss and the Germans who are doing the stuff that will form the Enlightenment. And talking about the Enlightenment, you know, Newton is held up as the creator of the Enlightenment almost single-handedly. And he's held up in the late 18th century by French philosophes as a man who showed that the human mind was adequate to, could grasp the way the world was. And that's an extraordinary thing. You know, for 2,500 years, people have groped towards these truths. But here is a man who did it. You know, that's an extraordinary thing. He showed that the human mind by itself was mature. So for people of a sort of anti-clerical persuasion, Newton shows that you don't need the myth of supernaturalism. You don't need religion. You don't need this. You don't need that. But I think in the English context, to a much lesser extent in the Scottish context, 
much lesser extent in France. But Newton also shows that there is a God. <laughs> you know, Newton's work, conversely, shows that there is a God, and the God is a geometer. God is a master of order and not confusion. And the fact that Newton is English and a child of the Church of England shows, first of all, that England is God's country, and it reinforces a very conservative view of the relationship between science and religion. So those two things paradoxically go together and move towards a kind of anti-clerical enlightenment of which Newton is the founder. And then this bolstering of this natural theology that reaches its peak at the start of the 19th century and is what Darwin fights against in his remarkable revolution that takes place in the 1840s and 50s. And Newton is the man who shows why it is, you know, that the heavens are the way they are. You know, if you moved Mars a few hundred kilometers away from where it is, the whole thing would come apart. But everything is exactly in the right place. The earth is exactly in the right place to produce the wonderful people we are. And that could not have happened by chance. That's natural theology. Newton shows that that is true. I don't believe that. But he shows to almost everybody in England and elsewhere that the world we live in could not have arisen by chance. So what greater proof of the existence of God could there be? What an extraordinary paradox. So the final question I have for you then is, in the many hours that you have spent yourself reading and transcribing and thinking about this man and his work, how has Newton most made an impact on you? What has most inspired or warned you? I like the independence of Newton. I like that ethic. Going back to your second question about science and religion, when I did my research and wrote a book a few years ago on Newton, I wanted to find out what ethics came from Newton's religion as I saw it into his daily life. And I like that his refusal to be his unwillingness, as it were, which goes on beyond his death, to be easily pigeonholed as any particular person. You know, is he a natural philosopher? Is he a mathematician? Is he a divine, you know, a professional theologian? He's all of those and none of those. He resists being classified in any kind of sectarian terms in terms of politics or religion. And I admire that independence. And I certainly don't want the Newton that I worked on to be a sort of unknown extension of myself, but I certainly admire in Newton that independence. I mean, there are lots of aspects of his personality that are amusingly troubling. You know, he's a conspiracy theorist. He's a bit of a bastard at times. He destroys people. And there's a wonderful book by Frank Manuel that I have to mention called A Portrait of Isaac Newton, which is a sort of psychoanalytic take on Newton from 1968. But I think Manuel gets really nicely the way in which the boy whose dad died before he was born and was brought up on his own, that boy and all those resentments became the sort of leading figure of English science and maybe even European science in the early 18th century. And he still does bad things to other people. But is seen by his followers as this wonderful saint with the whitest soul that anyone has ever seen, as one of his admirers said, but you tell that to his enemies. Thank you so much for this conversation, which has been one that has been richly satisfying and in which you've explained with beautiful simplicity some very deep and complex things. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks, Susanna. And thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors. 
Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor, and not just the Tudor, love. And you can also have your additional weekly booster jab with our Tudor Tuesday newsletter, with news of History Hit's best podcasts, articles, and films. Find out more at historyhit.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.